Welcome to Attune, an audio narrative anthology brought to you by the Yale Daily News. In order to stay in tune with others, we bring you compelling narratives about the everyday and the extraordinary. In this series, you'll hear student-produced short stories, plays, and poetry, as well as voice talent and original soundtracks by both Yale students and alumni. Whether you're listening on a drive or in quarantine, while making dinner or taking a walk, by yourself or with friends, we hope this collection of stories brings everyone a little closer together. Today, you'll be hearing three poems and a short story. The first poem is entitled Bunnyboro. It was written by Zun Yim and is read by Audrey Young. For those who would like to follow along as they listen, there's a link in the episode description to all the written work included. Bunny Burrow. One. It's not like I have a choice. My wallpapers are flaking, and I already taped a map over a punched hole. The size of a milk carton's cap? Maybe it is a peephole chiseled into the bare skeletons of the house writhing, alive, at the hollowed spine burrows. A ghost snuggling parallel as I fall asleep on the other side of the ruptured cement, festering on stolen dreams and missing pennies. Crumbs of metal bread, will it catch me off guard? But who am I kidding? I'm no Coraline. There's only the right side to my bed, and I still wake up wrong. Two, I never leave my curtains shut, even though my room's on the first floor. Strangers talk to me through my window panes. Words echo across my midday nap. Sleep slithers like Medusa's snakes. My breathing fossilized, ripples like moon puddles. Darkness slips along the cracked window. Shadows swing and sway on closed lids. Three. I can take those 50 steps to the closest dining hall. Left foot, right foot. But if not me, then who would be in my bed, hating the size of my wrist, the crookedness of my ring finger? I shut the door. Next up are two pieces by Morse Class of 87 alum Jennifer Freed. Both document Freed's experience educating refugees. The first poem, Lessons, is a moving piece of empathy and compassion, asking us to understand the struggles of learning an entirely new mode of living after being forced out of your homeland, the celebration of the resilience of displaced people. It was originally published in the Wooster Review. Lessons. If you were that woman, sitting every Friday in the public library, one week working through the who and how and why of simple questions whispering from your tutor's lips, the next week learning price and pay and sale and save, and how much does it cost? If you were that woman, then you too would ask for repetition of bag and back and bank, of leave, and leaf, and left, and live. And you would struggle to produce the anguish sounds that held the meanings you still held inside your head. The dappled murmurings of leaves outside your childhood home, 
the trees full of sweet yellow fruit you could not name in this new life, the lives you left so you could live, and as you moved your lips in all the unfamiliar ways to make the sounds your tutor made, she would nod and you would smile. But you would never write, for you'd not yet know how to form or read those fast, firm letters you watched pouring from her hand, and so you'd have no way to store what you had learned, except in memory and hope. Alongside memories of why you never needed written words in your native world, where your mother had taught you all the skills of planting and harvesting and weaving and singing that you would ever need for living in a lush, good place and alongside memories of gunfire echoing beyond the trees, of rebels begging for or stealing food, of soldiers from some distant city standing in your village, barking about loyalty and able-bodied men, and then the memories of Jungle Pass for five long nights of sharing food and whispered hope with others who had dared to flee, and the memories of the daughter and the son both born and grown high as your eye in the refugee camp on the border. The English words would nestle in amidst all this, get lost, be found again, and you would have to try to pull them out, but leave the rest behind. Try to let the new sounds tell you not only the hard-edged names and places of this brick and concrete life, but also how to live in it, how to take a city bus, how to pay for light, and you would sit again, 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 in a mauve chair at a round table in a library, amidst the shelves and worlds of words, struggling with your who and how and why, and you would not allow yourself to figure how much it had cost, or how much you still had to pay. You would smile and thank your tutor, and come back next Friday. The second poem, My Student Asks Me How I Know, asks not just for our empathy, but for our respect towards the struggles of refugees, and teaches us that knowledge is a tool for living. It was originally published in Off the Coast. My students ask me how I know. My student asks me how I know that North is North. How... If I look at a map of the world, do I decide which puzzled shape is home? And in the picture book, I gave him how can it say pyramids date back 4,000 years? If all the years we count, each time we write the date, are 2021. My student is 27 or 25 or 29. He does not know for sure. He does not know of dinosaurs or Darwin of Santa or satellites or cells or germs. But he knows how to find the best bamboo, how to cut it, carry it, transform it into walls and floor and roof to last three rainy seasons. He knows how to spear a fish, how to shroud the dead. He knows the language of his people and the language of the government his people fled and the language of the refugee camp, where he grew from boyhood into marriage. He knows how to write a little of all three of these, which mattered little before now, because so few of those he knew had ever needed written words. 
And now he's learned to read a third grade book in English, to drive a car, to walk in snow, to use library, laptop, bank. He's learned to live with a silent tongue in a text-rich land whose people carry Moses, Medusa, Mars, and the moon as lightly as pennies in their pockets. He's learned how to stack packages all night and go to classes in the day and to keep going day after day in a language that points to holes in the world he thought he knew. Holes through which he hopes to someday fit into another life easier than this. Our final piece is a short story called Forever In Between, written by Hannah Hahn and read by Sunny Parisian. This piece takes us back to that liminal space of being a first year at Yale, caught between your older, settled life and all the new, uncertain beginnings. Our city burned with light. From above, we searched for familiar forms among the lattice of buildings and streets. We were four high school graduates clinging to our slippery memories, searching for echoes of ourselves in each bright cluster, each dark road. Was that the route Ellie and I had taken when we rode the school bus together and she told me all the various things she wanted to be? A screenwriter, a urologist, a teacher. Was that the plaza where Cole and I had gossiped about post-graduation drama over cups of frozen yogurt? Was that the park where I'd prom post to Sam with a card and a drawing I'd made of Appa, his favorite flying bison? I wasn't sure. The city had lost its familiarity, flattening into a nameless grid. It was suddenly no longer the Los Angeles that had held 17 years worth of my dreams and memories in its palms. It was foreign. That same sense of unfamiliarity resurfaced a month later, when a new world opened up before me. I looked down and pressed my forehead against the airplane window. The landscape was dominated by fields, creased with rivers and studded with lonely, long-limbed trees. It had been years since I'd seen so much green. I fiddled with my backpack zipper as rural Connecticut unfurled before me. When I stepped into my college dorm room in New Haven for the first time, I pulled out the photograph we had taken on the overlook in Los Angeles. The ink was still fresh. I clipped the Polaroid on a string of fairy lights above my head, where it spun above me while I slept. Are you guys ready? I said, glancing over my shoulder at Sam and Ellie. It was a cool, mild day in July, and we were driving in my mother's black sedan. Before my friends could answer, I gunned the accelerator and we hurtled down the 405 south. The engine growled, fierce and guttural, an animal roused from hibernation. Let's go! Cole shouted from beside me. The interior of the car crackled with the smell of peppermint gum and burning gasoline. Warm air gushed through the vents, and Siza crooned in an electric bloom of sound, her husky voice spiraling out of the open windows. We shouted the lyrics along with her. We were moving through the world at a furious velocity, and we were vibrating with potential. We were four teenagers doing quintessentially teenage things. As a high schooler, I never had time to be spontaneous or carefree. I was always strategizing, always studying, always striving. I hadn't realized that I was deprived of these small, glittering moments, and now I hungered for them as we parked and climbed the hill to the overlook. Ellie stayed behind with me as Sam and Cole bounded ahead. My legs burned, and I listened to the rhythm of her breath. Hannah, 
Ellie stopped. I just wanted you to know I'm grateful that I met you. Cole and Sam are good guys. Being with all three of you makes me feel like, I don't know, like high school was worth it. A lizard clambered over her black high tops, emblazoned with flames. She shook her foot. The lizard scampered away in the underbrush. I'm grateful for you too, I smiled. Come on, guys, Cole's voice drifted from a hundred feet up. Let's go! You got this! San gave us a double thumbs up. Strangely, I would remember this image the most. Sam's basketball player frame silhouetted against the sky, his mouth open in a half laugh. One afternoon in New Haven, about a month into college, I sat on the bench outside of my dorm and squinted until the trees melted into a pool of green. A figure moved towards me in the distance, lanky and hunched. Sam. I stood up to hug him, but when I opened my eyes, it was just another first year, returning from taking out his recycling. Tears burned beneath my eyelids. I headed back into my dorm. Living among so many people had never felt so lonely. Halfway up the hill, Ellie and I continued trudging up the slope in comfortable silence. Cole ran back down to take our hands and pull us up the rest of the way. The brush grew sparser, just tangled knots of pampas grass and blooms of mustard flowers. I heard other voices at the top of the hill, and the pockmarked ground evened out into slabs of rock. I wandered to the edge of the overlook. We were here. I'd forgotten the vastness of Los Angeles and its brilliance. The moon hung above us, warm and heavy as a promise. We quieted. I imagined the skyscrapers and highways morphing into gothic towers and corridors swarming with students. I felt it. The presence of a world thousands of miles away from this hill, where my friends were no longer beside me. We have to go on a trip, I said. The four of us. Yes, Ellie nodded. That night, we planned the logistics. A few weeks later, we drove six hours to the Pelican Inn, a motel in central California overlooking the Pacific. We took hikes along the boardwalk and floated in a sunken hot tub by the parking lot, buoyed by the chlorinated water. Together, we drifted in a liminal space between childhood and adulthood. Prom and graduation seemed like a fever dream. College, a phantom. I refused to speak about college aloud because talking so recklessly about the future would be admitting that we had more important obligations, that we no longer needed each other. When I first arrived in New Haven, I expected to miss my friends acutely, but I never anticipated how lonely college would be, how it was, and still is, an exercise in independence and in isolation. Tossed onto new terrain, I was constantly recalibrating, searching for Cole's steadiness and Sam's warmth and Ellie's bluntness among hordes of students in the dining hall. Whenever I looked at the Polaroids in my dorm, I prayed for Thanksgiving break to arrive, Everything will be normal again soon. That summer night, on the outlook, we promised each other that we would always stay close. It was naive, and we all knew it. In New Haven, I flipped through our shared photo album and listened to Good Days, trying to find solace in Sis's voice. I understood that people evolved in college, discovering new desires, settling into their bodies and themselves. What I didn't realize was how rapidly my friends could change even as I felt that I had remained stagnant. On our FaceTime calls, my friends even commented that I was exactly the same as I had always been. 
When I saw Ellie for the first time over Thanksgiving break, a void had opened between us. She avoided making eye contact with me, and the silences in our conversations felt charged, awkward. It took her two, three, four days to answer my texts. Eventually, we stopped calling and texting entirely. A few weeks ago, Cole and I lost our 159-day Snapchat streak. Though our messages have dwindled, we still send each other glimpses of our lives. A blanket of snow on old campus, the palm trees outside of his dorm, the snowman my sweet man and I lovingly named Wallace. Sam and I text every day. He sends me strings of messages chronicling his daily adventures, and I send him photographs of the desert-dry chicken breasts I choked down in the dining hall. He continually reminds me of the power of a best friend and of how lucky I am to have him. The Polaroid of the four of us still hovers above me as I sleep. The colors are beginning to warp. When I look at the picture, I'm surprised at how quickly the clarity of the memory has faded, even as I'm still reconciling the distance between us. In the photograph, our arms are slung around each other, our smiles eternally warm, accepting. The lights of Los Angeles glint behind us, emitting an ethereal glow. Thank you for listening to this episode of Attune, the first episode of our fourth season. It was produced by Sophia Lee, Mitchell Davis, and Laura Palacio Londonio, as well as Liana Schmitter Emerson and Elena Unger. I'm Mitchell, your host for today. This episode was sound engineered by Mitchell Davis, Liana Schmitter Emerson, and Elena Unger. Our intro and outro theme was written by Sharon Ahn. Special thanks to Simia Lern and Andrea Lee, our podcast editors at the YDN. Join us again next time for short stories and poems exploring relationships, friendships, and family. From all of us at Attune, thank you for listening, and have a good day.